loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming Becky Wilkes. Becky lives with her husband of 48 years on Eagle Mountain Lake in Azel, Texas. Educated as a chemical engineer at Texas A&M, she chose to spend much of her life as a stay-at-home mom of four children who have now blessed her with a multitude of grandchildren. They expanded her knowledge of entropy, the study of chaos and order, which permeates much of her work. Prior to being interrupted by the pandemic, her photo project Ditched, which examines thousands of items of trash collected from the lakefront, was enjoying success in several solo shows, most notably in Lubbock, Texas, Portland, Oregon, and Dallas-Fort Worth area. Ditch was featured in the 2021 Lushui China Photography Festival, Beta Developments in Photography Number 32, and was recognized in Photo Lucida's 2019 Critical Mass Top 50. Ms. Wilkes loves to speak to groups about her project and the impact and variety of trash found in the ditch. Newer work from the series draws whimsy from these trashy photos to re-envision a world without trash, properly discarded or not. Galleria Dallas showcased this whimsical work for Earth Day 2023 in their artist showcase. When the COVID lockdown began, Wilkes felt compelled to bring her declining parents to live with her and her husband, pivoting her to portraiture of the faded couple. Twice recognized at, as Photo Lucida's critical mass top 50, till death do us part, bears witness to the struggles of mortality, aging, and grief. Exhibited at Arts Fort, Fort Worth, Fort Worth, Texas, the multimedia exhibition illuminated the intimacy, love, and vulnerability shared between Ms. Wilkes and her parents. Featured recently in the New Yorker's photo booth and highlighted in the New Yorker Mag Instagram post, this work received over 111,000 likes and almost 1,000 comments. I want to encourage you, while you're listening to the interview, to go to Becky's website, beckywilksphotography.com, uh, click on the do, Till Death Do Us Part link uh, to see the photos while we talk. So beautiful. Welcome, Becky. Thank you. Thank you for having me on this podcast. It was I, quite a surprise. <laughs> well, you know, you're you're out in the public realm with that series of really totally beautiful and amazing photographs. I really want to thank you for them. And uh, I just wanted to start by saying that I believe um, really opening to the truth of aging, illness, death, grief heals. It helps us uh, overall. And I'm sure you've helped other people by being so candid in your photographs. You, you didn't 
you didn't um, shy away from anything. So I want to thank you for that. And I also want to just understand a little more how that was for you to take pictures of your parents. Love, of course, but that's an intimacy for a child to walk into, isn't it? And then also their, their physicality their bodies, their um, pains and aches, you really captured them, I felt. I felt as if I knew them. How did you do that? I guess I'll start there. Um, It was rather organic the way it began when my brother and sister arrived with mom and dad. And daddy had been on hospice for a couple of months already and had shrunk to 106 pounds at six foot one and mom had had a stroke so these two people who hadn't seen each other for about a month two months um walk into my house and it's like lazarus from the dead (laughs) they're just daddy's got energy he's vitality he's skinny as can be but um you know it's pretty amazing. Well, we have a pretty mm, tentative first few weeks as they're settling in and kind of like a new baby. You don't know what those fries in the night might mean or what the pill situation are is. And, um, And what a profound adjustment for you and your husband. You weren't expecting to do that, as we are all weren't expecting what happened when COVID hit, right? But absolutely not. And I've I've often thought that, you know, had it not been for COVID, I would not have brought them to my home, which would have meant certain death for daddy. But um, I shared a lot of um, the experiences in the first couple of weeks with my siblings, text, email, phone photos, phone videos, and just watching my parents, I was so drawn and, um, I, I felt like it was visual poetry. They just were in constant motion and movement and, They cherished each other so much having been separated and they were never that parent growing up. I never saw my parents hold hands, lay next to each other, sit next to each other. They were like most of us that have been married a lot of years. Well, also, you you know, they let you in in such a profound way. They gave you permission to do that. They did. And I asked very specifically at about, um, well, March the thir- March 31st was when I first took the first real photos of them. And a couple weeks later, I actually had them sign a model release just so that should someday my brothers or sisters say, hey, you know, what were you thinking? I could say, look, mom and dad knew exactly what we were doing. And quite often they'd look up and they'd smile for a picture and I'd say, go about your business. I don't want your smiling face. (laughs) And they would. (laughs) I I think there was perhaps one photo in the 80 that you sent me that they were both looking at the camera smiling. I think there was one photo like that, which was a beautiful photo captured so much about them. But that isn't the heart of the project, is it? It's 
capturing them in their life together and being their daughter, because of course, what's not like having a baby is that they are your parents. Correct. They never stop. I, I, my opinion, even when we're caring for our parents, we're still their child, right? <laughs> um, Absolutely. So did you Absolutely. have moments of, of discomfort? You know, you made a decision, you wanted to capture everything, and then you did. And it's so intimate, Becky. I wondered if that was ever hard or if the camera protected you maybe from the awkwardness or, you know. Um, there was that, but with the exception of one photo that's in, I believe I sent it to you, of my mother after daddy has died, there's only the one photo where she said no. And I got it in one shot and I put the camera down. I mean, it, it was like I took the picture and then she said no and I put the camera down. And fortunately, I did get the shot. I do feel conflicted about that image, but it's such an important image because I think it shows the depth of her despair after daddy passed. So yeah, and, daddy, and daddy lived with us for nine months, not expecting him to live weeks. And um, he, he became completely... Um, at the time that that picture that's smiling was taken in July, I started thinking to myself, what have I done and how long are my parents going to live with me? Because <laughs> after, after COVID's over, there's, I don't see another solution, but for them to stay with me and they were so full of health that, um, but you know, with very super seniors that changes really fast. And we, we had numerous scares where you had to go down different pathways. I, I, um, I don't know if you consider this an advantage for the time, but people who have signed up for hospice, whether they die right away or not, have reckoned with the fact that they are dying to some degree and everyone around them has, right? So, right. I mean, I, th I think my wife lived for two and a half years on hospice, but, but the reckoning had occurred and was occurring, right? Absolutely. Daddy had short-term memory loss, though, so he, he was very cognizant and knew that he was on hospice, particularly when he was at the facility, because he was destitute and um, he just really had given up um, when he got to my house and after he regained health uh, he would occasionally go well I don't need that girl to help me with her shower and I would just look at her and go oh daddy if she's not here then I have to help you and that that would be extra work you, know? <laughs> you need <laughs> he, help he doesn't <laughs> well he would look at me and he would be kind of like Oh, okay. And then go about it. And, you know, uh, yeah, there were a lot of conversations we had over the time period and some of it was difficult, but I'm a pretty, um, forthright, um, authoritative, 
operate with a lot of self-assurance. And what I don't know, I try to find out or I will consult someone. But um, there were just a lot of things that we had discussions about. Uh, when daddy when daddy got to the house, his eating, well, he had like a starvation stomach. So his eating was very tenuous. And mom would kind of pick on him and say, well, Bob, why aren't you eating? Well, this would upset daddy. And he needed to piddle with his food for 30 minutes and then eventually start eating. And um, one time dad, dad would get up and he would go to the kitchen and kind of be upset and maybe sick. And I just looked at mom and I said, mom, that doesn't help. (laughs) You know, it's like, just let him piddle until he eats and then he'll settle down and, and, you know, get to business. It is frustrating, but (laughs) that's a real nip and tuck situation because if a person is actively dying, you definitely don't want to make them eat, you know, right? but he was, he resurrected in your house. That's absolutely. And that brings up a lot of, of musings for me. Uh, You know, we can't, we really can't know the answer, but there are, the primary way people die these days is in nursing homes, right? Right. They don't live near their children, or maybe their children can't can't do what you did. Or, and um, the implication with your parents is that um, if they had stayed there, they would not have lived as long, and they would have not died surrounded by love the way that they did. Is that a fair assumption? Oh, I think so, for sure. Particularly in daddy's case, my mother was rather social. And I think if she had survived the loss of dad and gone on to recover sufficiently and COVID wasn't in the equation, I think she would have loved going back to a facility where she would be surrounded by her peers and be in a social social network that she could develop in control of her own. Uh, couples are particularly particularly vulnerable in in senior facilities as they get close to death, because one of them will have an incident which will require skilled nursing, and that's not done in the room where you're having assisted care or independent care. And, you know, that's, that's kind of one of those things I question is why can't the nurses walk down the halls of the independent and assisted care and allow individual um, assessments in the rooms, in their, in their own rooms? Why do they have to move their apartment? And I guess I would say, there are a lot of different categories here that never seem to intersect. Like um, the Surgeon General of the U.S. says loneliness is an epidemic, and that particularly affects older um, people and younger people, right? Right. Um, And yet there is not a thought that separating someone from the person they've been with their whole lifetime is a health concern. Yes. You know, right. 
to me, that's a health concern. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you agree? And part of why your parents revived so amazingly, I feel has to do with the fact that they were together. Absolutely, I agree. Plus, you gave I, excellent care, I'm sure better than the the facility could and all of that, many factors, but you agree that that was one of the factors. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, being being separate. Well, daddy was clearly on, on his deathbed at the facility. I mean, he lay in a bed and they put him in a diaper and they didn't even walk him to the bathroom. So right before he went on hospice, he could walk 300 feet. Basically, overnight, he quit walking and um, comes to my house and starts walking again. There's a beautiful, uh, in some of the video you sent me, that video of each of them walking with their walker to the end of your pier. That mm -hmm. really touched me. And it's that what's worth the effort to do all those things, right? Absolutely. You live in a yeah. beautiful place. Um, they were surrounded by the love of each other and, and you. And um, there was there were reasons to go get up on the walker and, and walk to the end, weren't there? Well, my mom was quite a, um, well, she was a teacher, educator, and she never let that go for her. Uh, so she would get up in the morning and after they'd gotten their breakfast and their showering, which would take most of the morning, uh, she would say, Bob, let's go for a walk. You know, so she wanted to exercise him, not her, her exercise so much. She wanted to direct him to get exercise. Oh, she sounds and, so like my mother. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly there was a lot of that. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, yeah, she, she was, she's very, um, she always wanted to show you something or tell you something or teach you something. So it was quite, um, it's quite interesting having her in my home. It, it, I'll bet. I'll bet. I want to talk more about that and it's time for a break. So let's okay. take a break and then come back to it. Okay. Um, listeners, you can find links to my website and social media at the good grief page at voice America. Uh, all, links to everything there. And to find Becky Wilkes, go to Becky Wilkes Photography. It's W-I-L-K-E-S photography.com. Be back soon. Follow Voice America at facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, Working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. 
Play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Resiliency is the human capacity to lean into individual and collective strengths with compassion and grit when faced with the challenges of lived experience. Join host Elaine miller Karras for Resiliency Within, a program of hope and healing designed to inspire you to integrate wellness into your life, your family, and your community. In challenging times, you'll want to tune in every week. Resiliency Within can be heard every Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Becky Wilkes about her parents, the end of their lives, uh, eventually we'll talk about grief <laughs> and her photo series of them till death do us part. And um, Becky, before the break, we were just beginning to talk about the experience of living with your mom at the end of your parents' life. It, it seems as if there were challenges with your father that had to do with the fact that he was failing and maybe your mom too, because she did die not long after. But was there any dynamic challenge of, <laughs> you know, I've got, a, well, my, my mother, absolutely, I would have let her uh, come live with me, I offered. Uh, my mother-in-law was living with us when she died, um, but she did not want to at all, <laughs> not at all. So I just wondered how that was uh, between. Well, my, if my sister is listening to this podcast right now, she's laughing her head off because we've discussed this many times over. Um, yes, there there were all sorts of um, competing personalities. Mom, mom and dad both had competing health concerns. So uh, she had COPD. She had cancer. She frequently would have pneumonia. Um, and dad with his congestive heart issues and angina, I mean, the, the bucket was full on their health issues, but mom also suffered somewhat from depression. And a lot of that stemmed from her questioning her self worth and value. And I never had that. And from the time I was two years old and wanted to put my shoes on by myself, she found this as an affront to herself. And if I heard it once, I heard it a thousand times that I wanted to put my shoes on when I was two. And I'm like, mom, I had four children. When they could put their shoes on, I was like, thank God, do it, get it done or we're leaving. You know, it's like, this was no insult to me. So to have her in my home and be dependent upon me to help her, guide her, 
get her in the shower, um, assist her with her medications. And I tried to give them as much agency and freedom and personal space as I could. Um, I'm not a very needy person in the sense of needing acknowledgement for what I did or didn't do. Um, but I would kind of set, set things in motion and wherever they went, they went. And I just was picking up the pieces behind them. You know? <laughs> so you relied on what you learned claiming independence from a mother like her, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Which I think is partly generational. You know, I recognize that in many mothers I've, I've heard of and my own, you know, kind of being, having your feelings hurt if your child moves, moves away from you when that's what they're supposed to do. It's a real dilemma. Right. Uh, right. So somehow you manage to hold your own in it is how, is how it sounds. And kind I'm, of, I'm fiercely independent and she is one that is, well, if you're familiar with the Enneagram at all, she's a two on the Enneagram. She's a helper and she needs to get recognition for that helping that she does. And um, you, you could just see the two, the two edges that could run into each other really quick. I, I feel as if I saw a piece of her, you know, I, I don't know your parents, but I feel I do from your photographs and your videos when uh, your father was helping your mother put on her show, her shoe. shoe. Yes. Um, she, she was gently guiding him about it, which makes all the sense in the world because he had memory issues. And, but right. also there was sort of a sense of um, uh, now that you're saying what you're saying, I understand her patience about it more as long as he was letting her guide him. Um, exactly. Exactly. She would be okay. Yeah. Cause yeah. it took a long time, but she didn't seem ruffled by that at all. Um, that's one of those, that's one of those photographs that um, I, I don't remember why I walked into the room and daddy is helping mom put her shoe on her shoe on, but it was so hard and I was laughing so hard. I mean, I was videotaping and then I'm trying to shoot a straight picture and I'm laughing so hard. It's just, it's ridiculous because daddy just can't get it on mom's foot. And, you know, I don't know. Shoes and seniors don't seem to go very well once you've had a stroke. I, I actually consciously put my shoes on in the morning and think you put your foot there, you slide it in, you know, so that you have that memory because it's something that's so automatic. But if you have a stroke, mm -hmm. the memory isn't there. You, you don't even know what it is. The pathway's gone. Yeah. But also, I think a lot about, you know, many clients I have, have a lot of fears about aging that to my mind have to do with um, thinking they're still going to be in the same frame of mind uh, as they go along, which isn't true. Right. So uh, watching that, I was thinking, yeah, that's why I think a primary skill is adaptability and surrender with aging. 
the two of them just surrendered to the fact that putting on her shoes might take an hour. <laughs> right? Okay. It nearly did. <laughs> if it takes an hour, it takes an hour. You know, do we have that kind of capacity for patience and prioritizing? What it prioritized was their connection, I felt. Right. I, he right. was helping her. She was supporting him. Right. They were connected. That was more important than getting the shoes on quickly. And somehow you must have recognized that because you took a video instead of helping with the shoes. Absolutely. <laughs> it was priceless. I mean, if they needed my help, I would help. But if they didn't absolutely need my help, I tried to, uh, in you know, let them be with their processing because it was no, it, it was to no advantage for me to step in and to do something for them that they could do just because it took a long time. So that, I, I, that refers to your kids and not being upset. You know, <laughs> obviously I've had two year olds, I have children, um, a two year old putting their shoes on themselves is not as fast. Right. But once they can do it, it's worth the time. One, they get better at it. But two, uh, it fosters their independence. So it sounds as if you applied that same thing to your parents in a way. Certainly, certainly. And then, of course, I knew I was preserving these moments for me and my family. I, I had no idea that they would have any resonance beyond our family. And uh, I've been surprised, actually, by how they get received in the public. Well, let's talk about that for a minute, because I'm not surprised by it. Um, you know how, let's, let's take, for example, when um, uh, Diana died, Princess Diana. And there were just blocks and blocks of uh, tribute. Sure. It feels to me like we're waiting for someone to say grieve. We're waiting for someone to, uh, m not everybody, but many, many people want an outlet, but don't give themselves permission. And to me, you uncovered the facts of the end of people's lives in a particular circumstance, which is filled with love. But nonetheless, your, your images are uh, unapologetic portrayals of the end of life. Right. And I, I think there's a relief in that for people. Plus, a lot of people have experienced it, but don't have pictures. Right? Right. You know, I can't tell you the number of people. There were a lot of people who sent me pictures of their dying parents after the article came out in the New Yorker. I mean, they, they went to the trouble to find my email and they sent me an email. They didn't just write a comment or something. They sent me an email with pictures telling me how much they appreciated my pictures. They sent me pictures of their dying parents. Um, <clears throat> I heard it. I, I heard it from the, from the poet Mark Nepo once, and he said, I try to be as specific as possible in my poetry 
because if I'm specific enough, it's universal. So that's, that's been the, that's been the lesson. <laughs> yeah, but I'll bet you weren't prepared for that. And it's not that long since you went through that. No. Um, it, you know. Uh, but of course, we were preparing for this for a lot of years, which, as you know, when you journey with someone as they're dying actively or threatening, even if it comes and ebbs and goes, uh, you process some of that grief. It's anticipatory grief, I think they call it. Sure. And there are lots of griefs along the way. They lost abilities. and Oh, absolutely. Yes. There's something different when the person actually dies and you experience the death of both your parents within an extremely brief time. A couple of months. Is that is absolutely that yes? Two months after Daddy died, Mom died, and so, I feel. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, I I was just thinking. Yes. Okay. You you weren't at the very beginning of a process of letting go of them. Nonetheless, getting all of this um, feedback on what you've done and how it affects people and being invited into their grief that that sounds like a lot to me it is it is um i was uh, invited to participate in a photography crit group immediately before daddy died and i felt like too much too busy and then again immediately after he passed and i thought well the project's finished because till death do us part i had it seen as mom and dad's story and I get into this crit group and find out right away that I have to keep taking pictures. So instantly I pick up my camera again and I walk with my mother as she grieves my dad's loss. And, um, you know, then two months later she passes. And that's when I began the sympathy card textural uh, work to interpret I'm glad you my grief. Yeah, because um, it's such a dramatic contrast to the photographs, the kind of... Right. Um, well, I don't even know how to describe them exactly, but I want to say um, there's a, there's a, there's shapes and smudgy and words, and um, it made so much... Uh, emotional sense to me that you couldn't keep taking crisp um, pictures, crisp, crisp photographs that you needed a completely different way to capture that time. But of course, I'm just assuming, I don't know if that's what it was like for you. Well, throwing back to my former work with trash and multitudes of things and trying to make order out of chaos with two old people, the pills that you have daily, the pill bottles you have, the paperwork you see, there's all this stuff that kind of starts accumulating. And I realized midway through that there was the ephemera is something that I wanted to deal with, with mom and dad. And 
immediately after their death, we had received so many cards to my mother, to my other siblings, to us. You know, I think it was a time of grief with COVID and people felt like reaching out because they knew what we had done. And I ended up with this stack of sympathy cards that look like nothing my grief felt like. You know, they're these pastelli, sweet dandelions, rocks, whatever, butterflies. And you're like, what does this have to do with my grief? <laughs> and and oh, that's so, so familiar. Thanks for saying that. <laughs> well, so, you know, it was like, how do you convert this into an expression of, of what you feel? And I took and scanned all the cards, the insides and the outsides, and um, layered just the outsides. And then the interior, I separated the actual text that people had written. Because to me, that's what meant more than the card itself. It was what they said. And... um, yeah, I layered those, and then it it became this fog, like you say, it's smudgy, but this fog shift, and um, yeah, so and that's, that does capture to me a piece of how grief feels. Yeah, you yeah. know, and and also, I mean, as you might not be surprised to hear, I am so careful about a card I choose if I'm going to send a condolence card, because. There are hardly any of them that reflect my truth about, you know, the experience. What people, Absolutely. What people benefit from in grief. And, you know, I guess mostly it's this is terrible, you know, <laughs> in a way. <laughs> um, there's a, there's a, uh, Emily McDowell has made sympathy cards that are, um, very, very uh, straightforward about that. You know, basically this sucks and I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) She's got more humor about it, but you know, that kind of, so I, I, it's time for another break, but I think that's so important that, and, and the piece you made of 10,000 words of condolence, um, some of them probably hit others of them don't right? When you get condolences and their platitudinous or they don't connect with your experience entirely. So I also want to know when we get back how you came up with 10,000. That's an amazing project. So let's (laughs) our our break and then come back and talk about that. And listeners, once again, you can go to my website, weatheringgrief.com or the Good Grief host page to reach out to me. Let me know what you like what you'd like more of all of that and to find becky wilkes go to beckywilkesphotography.com voice america is on linkedin connect with us today this is good grief host cheryl jones whether you're in grief crisis deep loss or transition working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else that's why i'm happy to be sponsoring better help Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com slash goodgrief. That's betterhelp, 
facebook.com slash goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Functional Medicine with Dr. Robbins looks at how natural healing and biological dentistry can safely and effectively treat most health problems. You'll hear about the innovations in both traditional and alternative medicine therapies with doctors and dentists, along with discussions with chiropractors, medical experts, homeopaths, naturopaths, and energetic healers. It's great to have all the best information in one place. And Functional Medicine with Dr. Robbins brings it all together. Listen Thursdays at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Health & Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I've been talking with Becky Wilkes about her series of photographs, Till Death Do Us Part. And uh, right before the break, we were uh, I was expressing some curiosity how you came up with uh, your piece, 10,000 10, Words of Condolence, uh, that's another you know, in grief piece, as opposed to when your parents were were at the end of their lives. I mean, that is a lot of words of condolence to, to Ab- absolutely. And these are all the words that were written to the family from condolence cards. There are not repeats unless a particular person wrote a card to myself and my sister and used similar words. They might sound a lot the same, but um, I transcribed every word that everybody wrote. And when you receive as many cards as we did, you hear, I'm so sorry for your loss. I'm so sorry for your loss. That's, And I actually did one of those cloud diagrams or I think that's called a cloud diagram. Anyway, it's a word No, it's a word cloud is what they call it. And it tells you how many times X word is used. You know, is it God, sorry, loss, grief? And, you know, I'm so sorry for your loss was just mentioned so many times. But in a word document, it's real easy to see how many words the total document is. And in exhibition, I printed this. It was 10 foot by 10 foot. And I created wallpaper out of it. So it went on the wall. And um, then I placed the uh, photograph of mom and dad's remains on top of this. 
But um, yeah, I actually knew that there were 10, well, there's more than 10,000 words. I think it's like 11,000. Mm. You know, I'm so uh, obviously fascinated with how people navigate grief. It's so unique and so creative. What helps one person has no meaning to another. That's why I don't like rules about grief, right? Right. So um, that was a, a such a way to dive into the loss for you. It, and it was, and it's hard to believe I put out that much work that quickly following the death of mom. But preparing for the exhibition and reviewing the images was where just even saying that sentence makes my stomach hurt. I, uh, I'm a one on the Enneagram and we are gut people <laughs> and, and it's like, gets you in the gut. It really, it's like, it just clinches your gut and, um, studying all the various images, trying to decide which one is the sharpest, best in focus, which one emotes the most emotion. Which then, of course, means... You're studying it. And, and studying yourself in it is what occurs to me, that um, the pictures are one thing when you're taking them and they're alive. But to me, the pictures must have been a very different thing when they had then died to, to really engage with that whole experience that you had. I would think um, maybe I'm projecting this. Um, no, it's, it's very true. And um, also because I'm a one, I'm somewhat of a perfectionist. And so, you know, like, the frustration that I would experience if the photo wasn't exactly what I wanted. You can't go back and retake it. You can't get what you think of six months later. What should you have taken? And uh, yeah, very much so. That reminds me of, of something a lot of people say to me, clients, sometimes guests, where um, all the questions you wish you had asked, Oh, uh, right. Yeah. Um, right. And, and lately I was thinking about that in terms of my parents. I don't have that feeling about my wife because we talked and talked and talked and talked and, you know, um, it was an open book. But with my parents, the other day I had the thought, I, I had that, I wish I'd asked something. I don't remember what. And I right. thought that I wouldn't have asked that. Well, and not just even no. asking, but to record it so that you can remember it. Because daddy, daddy with his short-term memory would sit at the table and he would talk about his childhood memories. And when he was in Korea and talk about this stuff, I couldn't tell you what he told me, you know, because it, there were stories I'd heard before, but I can't remember them now. I, I'm, I don't remember things like that real well. And if you record every last thing in a, in a circumstance like that, you're actually distracting yourself from living. True. I kind of drove my wife crazy taking videos and pictures, most of which I've never looked at again. It was part of the process of 
thinking ahead to being without her. Right. It was a whole different thing once I was without her, right? <laughs> as, as experiences are. But um, so I imagine that must have been actually a painful process to put that exhibit together. And of course, you've exhibited different photographs in different venues. You know, you're, you're still engaged with those. Absolutely. The the, but the, the exhibit in Fort Worth was one where I had the entire gallery. And this was a huge gallery, about 200, 200 linear feet of wall. And so I had complete control over what we did with the space and to be able to tell this story. And I hired a wonderful consultant, uh, Jay Sibylla Smith, and she helped me navigate the material because I'm very linear. She's like, this isn't a linear story. It moves, it goes, it, you fluctuate in and out of vulnerability and intimacy and um, I, I thought she did a great job, but at the same time, it was a negotiation between the both of us. Uh, one of the things that I realized I, after after the whole process is I didn't take any photographs of myself with my parents in the last year. So there's not even a stupid iPhone picture where I'm smiling you know, yeah, that's hard. Yes, and also, I, I don't know if I could explain it in a linear manner, but it also makes a lot of sense to me that that you were you were observing something with your pictures. You're there, but you're behind the camera the whole time, right? And, and to then come in front of the camera, I can imagine that didn't really occur to you. Well, you know, but I'm also living the experience because I'm walking through the living room and there's mom and dad and they're sitting in these side by side walkers uh, reading their books in the sunshine. And I'm going, wow, that's something, you know, but they're they were slow moving. And so I had about 30 minutes to make any shot I wanted to make <laughs> so I could get my camera what, and walk what up. Helped. <laughs> <laughs> it was like I'd shoot the, I mean, there were moments that it was an instant and then it was gone, but they moved slow. And so I had lots of time to get a shot. So often I would have 20, 30 shots 40 shots, 50 shots of the same moment that I would sort through going, okay, well, this one's straighter. This one's, you know, more in focus. This one shows a little bit more on this side. This one shows a little more on that side and making all those decisions. It's not like it's fast. Mm, absolutely not. Um, you said something early on in this interview that I want to go back to a little bit, which, which is that, you hadn't previously observed your parents being this way with each other. Right. And I don't get the impression you think they changed. I get the impression you think that they were not, um, I don't know, not open with their affection. Uh, not. Oh, I think that I think they did change. 
Uh, I think they that's did. That's what change. I want to hear about. So something about this period in their lives actually uh, caused them to live in the preciousness of their life. Right. Daddy had had an exacerbation of his congestive heart failure in like 2018, where we really thought he was going to die. And, you know, miracle of miracles, he got some mitral valve clips, he regained health, came back, you know. And mom, after that point, was suffering with the thoughts that she had pretty much she had already kind of buried daddy in her mind. And then, so she was struggling with that. Well, he didn't die, but I'm grieving this loss. So they had had a number of those times where they were coming and going. And both of them had been in the hospital. Both of them had had these experiences, but I think it was that final separation because of COVID and daddy being in the hospice wing and mom being dependent upon somebody helping her to get to dad, which was like a quarter of a mile walk in the same building. Mm -hmm. um, I think they just, once they got back in the same house in the same bed, they just didn't want to let go, which was shocking. It really does highlight, though, how we don't always pay attention to what's most important. Absolutely. And that sometimes, I mean, of course, this is kind of the heart of my work is how do we pay attention, right? In yeah. advance, how do we pay attention as things are happening? It's, it's a lesson for the rest of us that they right. really opened up to love at the end of their lives, their own love that they'd had all along. But but they lived in it. They basked in it. What a beautiful thing to witness as their child. It was. It was. And it really, I, I, I we had such a great year together um, during COVID. I mean, the rest of the world was separated from their loved ones, and I was immersed in mine. This doesn't compare at all, but one of my children and her boyfriend came and lived with us. So that part of it was delightful, right? Well, it certainly other compares, were, you know? The other things were very hard. That was very delightful. Becky, I really want to thank you for being here. It's been really lovely having a conversation about this with you. And I hope people go look at the photos at your, at your uh, website or at the New Yorker, wherever they find them. So, so beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Fantastic. Again, to find Becky Wilkes, you can go to beckywilkesphotography.com. Next week, I'll have Emma Gray. We'll be talking about her novel, The Last Love Note. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Mm Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.